The views and opinions expressed by various contributors to 98.5 CKWR and its radio programs are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of 98.5 CKWR Wired World, Inc., its broadcasters, staff, or volunteers. Listeners are urged to use their own discernment and draw their own conclusions. Good morning. My name is Rob Daniels and welcome to Visions and Sound. Now, for those that may be joining me for the very first time, Visions and Sound is a movie, TV, and video game soundtrack program that I produce each and every week right here on 98.5 CKWR. Well, here we are, show number 16 of 2022 and show number 1,121 if you're keeping track that way. This week, we continue... 80s month with a celebration of the 40th anniversary of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. So now joining me this week, all the way from Ramsgate, England, is Jason Drury. Jason, it's wonderful to have you on the show this week. Good morning. Yep. So, 1979, Star Trek The Motion Picture saw the return of Star Trek to the public conscience and a huge jump to the big screen. Despite this triumphant return, the film was often seen in a disparaging light, being called Star Trek The Motion Sickness or Star Trek The Motionless Picture. The over $40 million budget didn't help matters either, and unfairly, the blame was placed on Gene Roddenberry, and Gene was kicked upstairs by Paramount to act only as executive consultant for any future films. While a sequel was never a certain thing, Star Trek was a perfect franchise for sequels. Another franchise that uh, kind of pushed that along was, uh, oh, something called Star Wars, perhaps? In any case, enter Harv Bennett, a TV producer who was brought in to rein in a Star Trek sequel and keep it to a stricter budget. Paramount, Paramount rather, was looking for a more action-oriented film and a villain to match. After watching all the episodes of the original series, Bennett decided on Khan as that villain. After getting the cast to return from the film, a rather difficult um, thing for Nimoy as to bring him back as well, all that was needed was a director. Now, Nicholas Meyer 
had just come off the marginally successful Time After Time and was chosen to direct. The original subtitle was Star Trek The Genesis Project. That was changed to Star Trek II, then Star Trek The Undiscovered Country, and then subsequently The Vengeance of Khan. That was discarded in in uh, difference to Star Trek, or sorry, Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi, which was actually uh, then which was then subtitled earlier as Revenge of the Jedi, and was planned to be released near the same time. I guess they didn't want confusion. Now the third subtitle was eventually used for Star Trek Six: The Undiscovered Country. Now for me, I first saw the film when I was twelve in the Fairway Twin Cinemas, a theater that used to be part of the Fairway Mall in Kitchener. Um, it had, I had not seen the motion picture in theaters and was glad to see the sequel in theaters. In fact, my mom took me to go see it. So, Jason, how old and where did you see the uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan? I think I first saw Star Trek II on video, home video. I think in 82, 82, 83, I think it was 12, 13 at the time. No one those pan and scan releases used to have. And I loved the film straight away. I thought mm-hmm. it was fantastic. I, I wanted to see it again. It was, it, was that, it was that good, you know. But it really did hit me straight away at what a good film this was. I, um, I first, I have actually seen it on the big screen. I think now I remember it's 86. There was... Um, the Colton Cinema in Westgate had a Trekathon, and it was like all the, the all the, the four first four Star Trek films back to back. That was the first time I saw it on the big screen, and it was amazing. It, it was you could see though seeing the films together, the complete comparison between contrast between Star Trek the Motion Picture, which was very like Robert Wise, very cinematic, very big, and you can see even. Straight away, the second film, it was a slightly different different texture, different, well, well, tele- TV-ic sort of feel to it. Slightly, slightly different feel in, in the way it was uh, it was photographed. But I've always, it's been a, you know, it's just, it's a film that I've seen so many times now. Even watching it a couple of nights ago, I was, you know, it's, it, it, see, you see a scene film so much, you can... You know, to, so the lines with, with the people, you know, when you're saying it, it's one, it's one of those sort of films for me that yeah. you know, you know, most of the lines, and it's it is just a, it really, even to this day, I think somebody said recently online that every time you see this filming, it's better and better and better, and uh, who am I not to agree? It is, <laughs> it is a, it's a terrific effort. It's a great film. It's silly, you know, it was like, it cost like probably a quarter of the size of the original film. And it's a great example of using existing sets to create a, a great movie. And uh, right. they've given the the brief of reducing a, a lower budget sort of film, but it's still as good as ever. It's still as good as the first film, but, it, and, and, and you got to admit they succeeded and by, by picking the, the right people to do the job at the right time. Yeah. Well, I, I, uh, I think if I recall correctly, the budget was about 12 to 14 million dollars. Mm. Now that's the catering budget for films for for larger films these days. So to pull off a film back 40 years ago for a uh, for a quarter of the uh, the cost as you mentioned uh, of uh, of Star Trek the motion picture uh is quite a feat um for for Harve Bennett now of course 
Um, he they had already they already had the sets there, so that was kind yes. of a nice little yes. as you mentioned the nice little uh, bonus to have. And they reused a lot of footage. I noticed um, mm, some of the yes. stuff from from Star <laughs> Trek Two or Star Star Trek the Motion Picture, the um, the dockings or the uh, the um, um, Enterprise Enterprise leaving the... leaving dry dock Le- is yep. is um, is pretty much close, very close yep. to the uh, to. Um, the start of the motion a, picture. It is exactly the same footage, but Horner, James Horner, the composer, was a, was a score scoring exactly. exactly the same well, well, that Joey Goldsmith had to do. We'll get to him. <laughs> trust me, he's he's the uh, um, quite the uh, um, interesting character to uh, add to this particular this particular mix. No, again, I remember uh, seeing the film back in '82. My I my my mom, I guess, um, just wanted to. To take me to the film, I think maybe she wanted to see it herself. And the the theater, I mean, it's unfortunately it no longer exists. The uh, the 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 Fairway Twin, uh, Fairview Mall Twin Cinemas, for those that would uh, would remember, were it like it had an arcade. It was mm. it was definitely your '80s kind of uh, kind of mall uh, cinema. Very um, my my uh, my friend Scott, who I used to see films with a lot, he would describe it as he would call it the an airplane theater because it was oh, like right. the, it had the, the the small the small size to it, but uh, it, so it felt like you were on an airplane as a, as opposed to the a movie theater. So yeah, the uh, the film itself though, and I, and I, I don't want to get into too much detail because I know we'll be getting into a lot more as the film goes on and and that sort of thing. Um, I remember. Jeez, being uh, uh, one of one of my favorite memories, and and, and I'll, I'll I'll throw this one out as well. Uh, when I first received the films for for Christmas on uh, on video, um, I remember that day um, watching two, three, and four with my mom and my dad uh, on on video, and it was just um, it's a it was a fantastic like just first of all it's it's a great story arc to yes. to 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 do i mean you've got two three and four which which do have had that wonderful story arc in it it's, it's a trilogy yep and it's probably one of the i i would say um something that isn't done very often hmm. anymore um you you get that um and taking a risk at the same time i mean when 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 Star Trek Two ended, and, and and I mean obviously spoilers for a forty-year-old film. If you haven't seen it at this point, you're missing out. And if you don't know, because they reference it almost every, every, almost in a whole bunch of different uh, um, different films. But um, Spock dies at the end, and <gasps> at at in in eighty two, there was no. Star Trek three on the horizon. There was nothing. So we didn't know. Could this have been, could this be the last film for, for the crew? Could this, yeah. when it was leaked out, it was up or apparently it was death threats to some of the producers because of it. Yeah. It was that, it was that, you know, I remember appearing in the papers and people saying spots going to die. Oh yeah. Uh, I, well, I, I remember, I think it was Harv Bennett received a, a letter saying, if you kill Spock, I'll kill you. Or if, if if it was Harv Bennett or if it was Nicholas Meyer, I can't remember. I think it, I think, it, I think it was Bennett or one of the producers. I think I think it could be Robert Sullen. I think because I, I just saw I just saw him talk about it. 
you know, on a, on a documentary, we yeah. did a terrific documentary at the moment on uh, IMDb, which is talking about Star Trek history. Which, yeah, there's. Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, there was Robert Sullivan. I think talking about it, having a death threat, saying, "Oh, somebody saying, oh, is this? If you kill Spock, you will die as well." And I thought, but this is, but she said he couldn't believe it. And it's, 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 it's a character. What, what, what? Yeah. It's really, really. And, the, and, and, and the funny part about all of this is, it's pre-internet. Yes. So this is like pre pre internet, so we don't have the the weirdest. I remember the uh, and and just jumping ahead just a little bit, but I remember the the uh, the people lost their 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 stuff when uh, when it was announced that uh, Star Trek Six was supposed to be the um uh, uh, supposed to be the Academy going uh, recasting the crew and doing the Academy thing, and people were up in arms about that. And I mean that's ninety one. But yeah, in any that, ca- cost, that cost half Bennett his position on the sixth film because he was he was intent on doing that film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So and they 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 shoved him to the corner because of it because that was that was the end of uh, his association with Star Trek. Exactly. Now the thing the thing for me again uh, is this film deals with getting old, and it's interesting. I watch it now, and I think to myself, well, I, I'm um. I think Bob, who I'm um, surprised has not showed up on our on our uh, on our gallery tonight to to uh, to to talk about the the film off air. Um, he he describes that he is the same age now that Shatner was in Star Trek Two. So you get that, um, and and of course all of those characters were getting up in up there in, in age, and uh, I'm glad that. Um, I think it was Bennett that said to Shatner. Yes. Shatner wanted Shatner wanted to to stick to his younger self. <laughs> I think that's why he was doing T.J. Hooker at the time. I guess. Yes. 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 In, in any in any case, um, Bennett said to him, "Well, look, you can be like Spencer Tracy, and grow mm-hmm. old gracefully." And in this case, the the each one of the characters in their own way, um, uh, it, it, specifically uh, um, uh, Shatner, the the three of them deal with age. In their in their own way, and even Shatner, you know, he gets the, the 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 spectacles there, and that sort of thing. So yeah, it really pushes that idea that you know, first of all, the fan base was getting older, the yes. characters were getting older, and I'm glad that they dealt with that, and they continued to deal with that throughout mm. the series, um, right up right up and even to the uh, even into Star Trek Six and beyond that. So it's good that they were able to to kind of continue with that. Now, um, Star Trek Two for me, and and again watching it again tonight, or watching it again rather earlier this evening, uh, earlier yesterday, yesterday, yesterday afternoon. I'll just say yesterday afternoon. Um, I noticed a few things, and and um, maybe we can we can discuss those maybe a little later on. But you mentioned something about. Uh, your Ricardo Maltabon story. There's a few, yes. a few other little things. I mean, the for the longest time, I remember hearing a, a rumor that um, Ricardo Maltabon's chest was a rubber chest, and it, uh, it was not. No, he was built that way. He was. It was. Uh, he, yeah, he apparently took the role of Khan to get away from his role of Mr. Rourke. On uh, on on Fantasy Island, 
Well, saying that there's a picture I remember seeing. He was doing the scene with uh, his appearance in the film, you know, when he does found him and he's doing his speech when suddenly I think it's his birthday and uh, who would appear in his birthday was a cake. And uh, Tattoo, was his name? Hertz Velazquez. Yeah, he was Herve Velazquez, so, yeah. To, so he couldn't escape it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, it was it was... It was that and rich Corinthian leather was another one that uh, he had trouble escaping for the for the longest time. But yeah, um, I re- I think it was on the director's commentary of Star, Star Trek Two, where um, Nicholas Meyer says that um, Ricardo Maltaban very easily could have played King Lear, yes, and he would was, have done would have done a stellar job with it. He was, a, he, he was he was in awe of uh, Ricardo Montalban as well. He was very scared to say things to him. As, <laughs> should, should, should I tell, tell the story now, or should we hold it later? The, uh, so, go right ahead. Yeah, let's let's well, go go for it. This it, is from the documentary of the Center Sea, and I thought it was a great story. He, Nicholas Meyer was physically he was directing. He was physically scared of Ricardo Montalban, and when he does that scene, he says, "This is City Alpha Five, and he shouted yeah. he shouted his lines. So he thought, you know, he thought, he's got to tone this down a bit. And I thought, how am I going to explain it to Ricardo Moltaban? He's this great actor. So he decided to take it to one side and he told him, could you tone it down a little bit? And then, he, then he, the next thing Ricardo Moltaban said to him was, oh, you, you give, you're giving me direction? No, no, this, this is good. I had no direction. Now I know, now I know how to do the scene. This is, this is good. Excellent. He came back, and in the second take is what you see in the film. He absolutely nailed it. All he needed was the right direction how he wanted for for that scene to produce the performance he did. And one of the reasons why Star Trek Two is the iconic film is the Star Trek fans and in films in particular is Cardinal Multiband's performance. He is terrific. Yeah, I will have to. I would have to say. I mean, they have tried, um, even even going so far as to bring in uh, Benedict Cumberbatch to try and do a a a, a con like character, um, but they have never been able to match, in my opinion. Um, maybe Christopher Plummer getting close with Chang, close, yes. but not quite as as good as um, as Ricardo Montalban as Khan. It- he said the only, only regret he had during the entire film, he didn't have a scene face-to-face with William Shatner. He yes. wanted that. But unfortunately, with, with the budget constraints, how he did the film, he did all his lines to a a, a woman assistant, female assistant. <laughs> it didn't, didn't work. He, wasn't, he, couldn't, he, he tried his best to think Shatner was there facing him, but that's, that's as close they got. I think they only met, I think, at the, at the premiere. Yeah, I, 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 I heard <laughs> that as well. Well... Uh, due to budget constraints, the film had to settle for a lesser-known composer that would ask for less money. Uh, the names of Jerry Goldsmith and this surprised me, Miklos Rosa, were considered were considered and rejected early. Just think on an alternate timeline: Miklos Rosa's going Star Trek. That would have just oh, that would have been wonderful. That 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 boggles the mind, is what that and, does. And, in fact, Jerry Goldsmith's fee at the time was the exact. Same, exactly the same amount as the special effects budget on the film, so that's why he wasn't chosen. And there's this thing he always kept saying in his in his concerts: "says Oh, people ask me why I didn't uh, score Star Trek Two. Well, the reason was simple. 
I was never asked. Yeah. Because of the money. <laughs> now, apparently, and from what I remember um, on his on the director's commentary on um, the motion picture, he mentions the fact that he was approached to do to do the music for the the original series. It, that's correct. It, it was on the shortlist. Yeah. And it was, and I I'm honestly surprised, considering his 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 resume, that he did not. That's just. I me. think it was in the middle of his film with Fox. That's was a lot of. I think 1966 yeah, at the Blue Max and I was going to say Sand Pebbles. Pebbles. Yeah. Sand Pebbles. There was a lot of. So I probably was unavailable, and uh, he was doing some TV work at the time. I think, I think that was 66 was the year of uh, his score for Children and the Wealth of Voice at the Bottom of the Sea. So he was he was oh, around, right. but. Um, that's some great composers on the TV series, as we, as we know. So it's a shame they didn't did have another season. And some more good composers would have added added to the mix. But uh, that's had some hey, great people working on the series. Exactly. And Goldsmith would have been oh, what, what a composer to have. Yeah, for for that. Now, apparently, um, both Goldsmith and Rosa were both prohibitively expensive. So James Horner was 28 years old, obscure and relatively cheap to hire. Sounds familiar. Ten thousand dollars. That was his fee. Yeah, he was recommended by uh, executive Joe Joel Sill, who felt Horner's music was far from the generic film music that was coming out of Hollywood that day, those days. Uh, this was the first major high-profile film with music by James Horner. Jerry Goldsmith wrote the score for the previous, um, the film's predecessor, Star Trek: The Motion Picture. And the following quote by Horner likely references the fact. I'm sure that I was influenced by Goldsmith's large orchestral scores when I started out, and that was because the people who employed me wanted that kind of sound. I wasn't in the position to say, go to hell. Horner's score has been released in many forms, and most recently on the in 2021 on the La La Land Records label, and that's what will be featured this morning. So here's a little bit of uh, music, and we'll come back and we'll discuss more about uh, Star Trek II and our memories and, and that sort of thing right after this.
And with a little bit of music from the film Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. It's music, of course, by the late, great James Horner. If you're interested in any of the film, television, or video game music that I do play here on the show, by all means, you can contact me at, of course, visionsinsound at gmail.com. You can also try me online at facebook.com slash visionsinsound. I am on the Twitter at visionsound. You can also try me on my website, visionsinsound.ca. You can also try me on Good Pods as well as Apple Music as well if you are into the podcasting. And and this one will be up in about uh, two, three hours time. So in any case, welcome back to Visions and Sound as this week we are celebrating the 40th anniversary of the Wrath of Khan. Now, we were discussing off air and some of the, the, the epic music that came from this in particular and um, there's always been, and I think it's, 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 a it's, um, it's a, uh, oh, I, I, I think I hear a little kitty cat in the background there. there oh yes. Jason. Yes. yes. Oh, Munchie has making the, making the appearance to send. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll, 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 we, we know about the, sh- we know about show cats and that sort of thing. They, yeah. they show up in, in, in any case, wanted to get back to, um, that wonderful, uh, clearing all our enterprise clears moorings. Yes. And uh, it, it it really feels, and, and one of the directions I think that Nick Meyer gave uh, James Horner was, um, he, I think he called it, he wanted the score to be nautical but nice. Mm. Yes, I think was that was the term. It, it, it could it could hear the waves oh, on, on coming along on, on it's it's I think I, I remember seeing when I, when I bought the. Mutual on the Bounty, the feed disc for FSM. It, in the notes, it mentions the influence. It's very similar to James Horner's score for Star Trek II. Mm-hmm. And that, was, that was like in 1960, the, the British Love score. It was, like, it's a, it, it, was, it was compared to Mutual on the Bounty. Right. That, that says how much, you know, how seafaring it feels. You can, you can, you can feel, feel the waves. It's Horner. It was, people say Horner's great composer of 
things flying, flying sequences. Yes. He also was this show shows he could he could also compose music for the for water for the sea. Now, did he ever do any kind of like um, like undersea or or on the sea adventure films or anything like that? The, the only one I could think of is the Perfect Storm, which. Oh, uh, but yeah, that really didn't. But that was uh, that was a slightly different. I think that was the only one I see sea basic to my mind. But that was a completely different sort of movie because it was a complete, you know, waves going everywhere. But it has a lovely nautical feel to it, which is this score, which is, um, it, it really adds, adds to the, you know, it, it's the Star Trek films have always been, in fact, the Star Trek series itself is like um, the Navy in space sort yes. of feel to it. Yep. And it's absolutely, it's the score really adds to that sort of feel. Everything in Star Trek is like nautical based. Like you know, there's an admiral. There's you know, everything's got midshipmen. Yep. You know, it, 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 oh, oh. So it's this Turner score added added to that feel. Mm-hmm. In my, well, in my opinion. I, I, if I recall correctly, and um, Meyer actually approached his uh, his uh, direction to um, uh, to Kirk as like Horatio Hornblower in space. Mm. Yes. I think was the uh, was the 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 term that he used. So yeah, it's, it's, it's great to hear that. Um, and I, and it's, um, I, I've always, I've always used Star Trek two. If, if people, if, if people go, why do you like, why do you like soundtrack music? Why do you listen to soundtrack music? And I'll go have a listen to Star Trek two, and then you'll completely understand. Yes. Now, one of the one of the things, and it's going to come up, and I won't get into it like in a major way, but um, one of the things that has always been on my mind, and I'm and and I actually um, David Casina, who is the resident um, uh, composer for Cinematic Sound, who does the who does their their music and that sort of thing for for the for the website and and that sort of thing. One of the things I've always, um, I, I asked him, I asked him a few weeks ago whether or not they had actually released the, um, the score, the, 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 uh, the written score. Cause uh, they, they, they've been doing that, uh, with, uh, yes. with, yes. A, with a few films. And the question then became, I'm, I'm wondering, there's a, there's this calm theme for, for lack of a better word, the enterprise theme. Mm. Which just has this this da 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 kind of thing, and then I keep and then then there's this this kind of chaotic con theme, and we'll, we'll, like I said, we'll get into that just a little bit later on, and I'm wondering if it's the same notes but just done in a more mm. frantic way, and I've been and I wanted to see the no, the notation that mm, and I yes. that and I want to see how they note how do they how do they notate the uh, the blaster beam. Which actually well, well, does make an appearance in this score, yes. which surprises me. Well, well, Horner was a regular user of Blaster Bing. He used it for Battery Beyond the Stars and a couple of other scores. So he mm-hmm. was he used it quite a lot of number of his scores in the 1980s. Yeah. But going back to the theme, the uh, the, the main the original theme, the first, it was based the two there's two sections of the original theme of of, of this of, of Star Trek Two and Star Trek Three as well. Mm-hmm. The first part they did, that's Kirk. Yeah. Then da, 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 that that second part, that's the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. So that that's the, if you hear the film, that's Kirk's theme. When Kirk's doing something, when his glass, when he puts his glasses on, you hear the first part of the main theme. But when it, but the uh, 
that's why you're here, particularly if you see Star Trek Three. Uh, when the Enterprise is uh, Enterprise is destroyed, you hear the that that that's the that that was, and also when it, when it comes out of space, it was being chased right. by the um, by the Excelsior. So the, those those are the, 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 the that theme is like Kirk and then the Enterprise theme, and that's how we, how Horner used it in. Both the both those two films, right? The the Khan theme that is, it's supposed to be showing his insanity, particularly the use of the echoplex. But the thing, but the thing I'm I'm ask I'm I'm asking is that are the notes similar, but just played in a different way? Is it Poss- is quite, it basically is it basically Kirk's theme, but played in a chaotic, in a in a yes. more chaotic, and and that was why I wanted to see the note the. Mm. the it would it'll be interesting. Compar- yes, the comparison I, I, between. I, I, between the two, it's something that actually came to came to mind. Like I said a few weeks ago, and I was hoping that uh, um, that David would be able to to, to I, let me know. But I, I would love to read music, and you know, if, yeah. if I bought if I bought a book like that, it'd be completely useless to me because it'd just be a load of dots. But mm-hmm. there's people like David Cosino, as we know, is a great is done some great stuff with cinematic sound. Yeah, he's composed both my archive and my my talking soundtracks themes, and they're both fantastic. He he'll be the guy to speak to about this sort of thing, and he'll and probably be very be fascinating to see what he says. But I feel personally there is there is a, a, I think as in the series itself, there's always been a link to, to to Captain Kirk and the Enterprise, and that's how Horner did it, producing his theme, which is related, related in a way to both 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 those characters because the Enterprise mm-hmm. itself is, is a character itself in the series and in the films. Yep. For sure, for sure. The uh, um, again, and the the whole idea, I think, of uh, of you know, um, one of the things that they they did do in this that I uh, um, I think may have been a directive from Paramount was they used the the uh, Alexander Courage theme a lot more. Yes, um, I, think were, I think Horner was told to use this a little bit, but I think he says that the start of the film the film begins with the coverage fanfare. Mm-hmm. And he says that I think he says in that interview what um, he did that he did some before we died with Tommy Pearson. I think I used on my Horner show. That was the, he wanted to put it in there. Say, right, this is Star Trek. Here we go. Because that's the that, like, like the fan face. That's a similar way to what Jerry Goldsmith did in the when he did with the uh, when he did his scores from five onwards. He always had the Star Trek feet. And it's covers his fanfare. He started the films with that. And then this is Star Trek, and away we go. But this film, like in um, the three, Horner does use that fanfare a lot. Even he uses it in some very key moments in the film, particularly sure. towards the particularly towards the end. Mm-hmm. So he 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 even at this time, Horner was an expert in putting the, the right music in the right place in the movie. And this is and his use of the fanfare in both the both the Star Trek films he scores is subtle. And perfect. Yeah, what what a um uh, an overwhelming task that he had, considering that he was twenty eight years old. I'm trying to think how I was when I was twenty eight and what I was doing, and and uh, and be writing writing film music for one of the biggest franchises in the world, and uh, following following Jerry Goldsmith. Um, at the same time, and, and I know there was rumors. I don't know if this is true or not, but I think I've read somewhere that he was 
he actually was at some of the um, Star Trek the Motion Picture sessions, but I think he was going out with Jerry Goldsmith's daughter at the time. Well, there you go. Allegedly. I don't know if it's Allegedly, yes. I don't know if it's true or not, but that's, 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 I've, I've, uh, I've read somewhere. And uh, I think he was... Very, I think at all these schools, even if you listen to the schools beforehand, he's obviously definitely influenced by Jerry Goldsmith, even if he did deny it at times. For sure, but for he, sure. But he was, it's obvious. There's a lot. There's a lot of similarities between his work and Goldsmith's at points. Because as we, as we know, I think we've mentioned before, Goldsmith, James Horner did a lot of repetitionist stuff. Yes. And there's a lot of there's a lot of diff- already. There's some films he's done before come into he's used into Star Trek. But particularly, there's two films in particular which I think the score is based on. Battle Beyond the Stars. If you listen, mm-hmm. to, listen to Battle Beyond the Stars, that's more. There's a lot of there's a lot of Star Trek Two and Battle Beyond the Stars. <laughs> yes. And apparently Khan's theme comes out from his work on Wolfen. So it's a, it's used, I think it was, and I think it was Wolfen that managed Horner used as the demo tape, which he sent to the producer Robert Salin. Yeah, I can the see gig that. For Star Trek Two. So uh, even then, he was using his using is moving his material along to other films. Which he was. Well known for, but it, it works. It works. It works. <laughs> this is it works. yeah, as exactly. Horner, as a Horner, Horner defended himself, saying, you know, as uh, you know, if it works with the film, that's how he it works with different. Okay, could the same same piece of music for a different film, but it it works, mm-hmm. and, that, and that's that's how he scored. He scored the films, you know, as if somebody else is nobody's going to hear see his other films until they wouldn't recognize all oh, that piece of music from that film. That that film, if right. it works with that movie. That modern piece of music, he's composed it, so we can do what he wants of it. It's, and it's, it's the same. A lot of composers over the years have done have done that. Mm-hmm. You know, even even I've read recently Bernard Herrmann, he he put some of his some previous films. You know, music came. You know, music of a previous film appeared in his latest scores. Well, so inter- interesting. He's, 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 he's not the only one. Yeah, interesting yeah. to note that. Um, and everybody talks about John Williams not reusing his stuff, but there is. A theme in his score to the Amazing Stories: The Mission, yeah, that shows up in in uh, 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 Attack of the Clones, yeah. And I'm like, when I heard, well, like, I don't know if if people are are general generally know, but what I'm doing right now is I'm uh, starting like starting back on March sixth. I started going through my soundtracks starting at A, and hopefully one day I'll get to. To, to Z. So right now I'm on 163 at this point. Uh, just just finished um, Attila the Hun and Napoleon. But in in all of that, um, there was the, these. Um, uh, I've, I've like I said heard amazing stories and I went, hmm, that sounds very familiar. And and also, um, well, of course, the the very first. The very first score that I have is number one in my in my collection is uh, a, a beautiful mind, which has oh, yeah. which is which is of course James Horner as well. So for me, this is is uh, um, an amazing discovery and an amazing um, journey to get to this point. I mean, I've, I've hit a couple of James Horner scores. Mm. Still, still hitting Avatar very, 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 very soon. In any case. But we're getting getting off off topic here. Uh, Star Trek Two, um, I I you know it's funny the 
going back to to 82 and seeing it in the theater i even back then i remember the music affecting me in a big yes. way yes and um and you mentioned i did we we were talking on air about being finding the score um uh, or rather yes. off air yeah. about finding fi- the fi- finding, finding the score yes. uh, for me i didn't get the score on cd until um, I went to a Star Trek convention and ended up, ended up getting two and three from one of the dealer's rooms. And that for me was a, was a huge deal. Uh, four was generally available cause, cause around, yeah, four and five were generally available at that time. Uh, Star Trek, the motion picture less so because, uh, I don't I, know if it was Columbia that released it. Originally, I, I first got it on cassette. It's a very basic cassette vision. I played that to pieces as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was so now, relieved when they came out on CD. Now, eventually. one of one of the things that that uh, as as a collector, uh, for some strange reason, um, I would want I would want to to at least pick up uh, one of the Star Trek um, scores on eight track. But that's just me. <laughs> In any yes. case. So yeah, um, well, you know what, you know what, I think what we're going to do at this point is uh, simply say this, if you're interested in any of the film, television, or video game music that I do play here on the show, by all means, contact me at visionsinsound at at gmail.com. You can also try me online at facebook.com slash visionsinsound. I am on the Twitter at visionsound. You can also try my website, visionsinsound.ca, where this show and many, many others live and will live. Um, in sort of this archive that I have um, of, of shows. Um, my, and, and if you want to go back as far back as uh, 2000, you can, and you can hear the shows. Um, I'm also, uh, also, if you want to track my progress of the uh, 2022 soundtrack listening project, which is what I'm working on right now as well, is this, uh, I, I, again, I briefly mentioned it, starting from uh, star, uh, starting from Star Trek 1? No. Starting from number number one soundtrack to, uh, to hopefully getting to the end, A to Z. And uh, so hopefully we'll, we'll get to that. So what I'm going to say is this. Uh, let's continue on with some more music from uh, Star Trek 2, The Wrath of Khan. And uh, we'll be back in just a little bit.
I shall leave you as you left her, left me, left her. In the center of a dead planet, buried alive. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to do the con, yeah, because it's a little, a little too early for that. But yeah, um, that. I mean, yeah, you you don't even you don't even hear Shatner yell in this one, and yet even with the 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 score, you can hear it. You can hear it, and it's it's quite 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 stunning. In in any case, welcome back to uh, Visions and Sound. As this week we are celebrating the fortieth anniversary, forty years of Star Trek Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. If you're interested in any of the film, television, or video game music that I do play here on the show, by all means, you can contact me, of course, visionsinsound at gmail.com. You can also try me online at facebook.com slash visionsinsound. I'm on the Twitter at visionsound. I'm also, you can also find me on Good Pods, which is a downloadable app for your phone and other type devices, and also Apple Music if you choose to do that. And these will, these particular this particular show will show up in about, like I said, about two hours' time. In any case, as I said, welcome back to Visions and Sound. As this week, we are celebrating the 40th anniversary of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And again, I can't say enough, we can't say enough good things about the music here. Uh, just just in, the, uh, in, that last, in that last little bit with... Um, with um, with Montalban's uh, Montalban and and Shatner squaring off over again over over um, over the radio or over the, the the subspace chatter there. Yes, yeah. And uh, that very famous, of course, the uh, the con. Um, why, why can't you blood suck you? Yes. You've got to do your own dirty work now. Yeah. Everybody else, but like poor monster, keep missing yes. the target. Yes, you're gonna, if you're going to have to kill me, you're. <laughs> You're gonna have to come down here. Come down here. Yes. Right. Oh yeah. I will say this. I mean, Shatner gets gets crap for, you know, overacting. But I thought he was he he was particularly restrained. In in performance and his directing, Mick Myers directed. I feel that sequence I told you about the the clerks as Bill's reply when he kept being like sarcastic like here it comes exactly when Byron said you got to no you got to not give away what you're doing so you think it was the 11th time he did it and he was like getting bored and said here it comes mm-hmm. and it was perfect yep so yeah Meyer had, he had to find a way of getting what he wanted in the scene from Shatner <laughs> so the way he was getting he was bore him to death by doing this again and again and again and sooner or later he would do it and it, and it works that's that's how that's how my directed him yeah he directed shatner's ego more than i think also with his performance <laughs> i think i think that's a that's a, a good way of putting it now um in this film i found as well and there are the there are several different versions of the film and we've we've talked about this um i i specifically um the the director's cut i guess you could say on on dvd there were a few extra things that i don't remember seeing when i when i saw it way back in in Mm. 82 or even on tv although it was it was the it was the it was a tv cut of the of the film that i actually remember this particular scene and it's just after they've just gotten back after uh uh con has left him buried alive and um so he comes the kirk and kirk and Kirk and crew are back on the uh, on the ship, 
and yep. they have to come up through the Jeffrey's tube. And uh, Kirk says, that young man, he's my son. And of course, uh, and, and then uh, um, Spock, Spock's, Spock's fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> now, that, now that sequence, as I said to you off, off air, the new DVD release that came out, that, that they have got the sequence they walk up and that, that bit of dialogue has been taken out. Hmm. And I thought, that's a, that's a bit, I was, I was disappointed with that. Why they taken that out? It's a lovely, it's a great line. Yeah, it's obviously dubbed in in pre-production because it's in post because you don't see them actually saying it. But it'd been great to keep in. Why did did, did I take that out? I was disappointed. Hmm. It's one of my, as I said, it's one of my favorite lines of the uh, of the director. Well, that and that and disappeared. Yeah, that and and Ensign Preston, his his stuff, and explain explains why Scotty was so sad and so you know what happened with why the why he was so. You know what happened? Grief stricken when Preston died because he's he's, he's, a, he's a, it's a relative. Yeah, it was his nephew. Yeah, and, and, and it's his nephew. It's it's uh, and, and director's got it. It explains it because it's, it, it, it for the theatrical version. You wonder why is he taking this 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 why is he taking this man down this 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 this, this body down to, to the bridge and not to sick bay? Yeah, why has he done that? And the reason was he wanted, he wanted to show he wanted to show Kurt what what is what has been like down there. So what if you took if you took the sick way, he may have survived. And uh, the thing I like about that the the additional stuff that they do add is that um, Duhan gets a chance to act yes. really well. It's not yes. he's he's not just throwing around catchphrases and 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 uh, you know I cannot do it kind of captain kind of thing. No, he, he, he actually he stayed at his post when yeah. the trainees ran. But the thing is, he asks he asks the question, "Why? Why did this happen?" And and then, uh, and then there's a scene afterwards. I think it's just a good him and Kirk and McCoy talk, and yeah. he says to suddenly McCoy and Kirk says to, at the end of the scene, "I we only got away with this because I knew something about this shit that that he didn't." Mm-hmm. But, but the the thing that that really that that kind of surprised me was was the scene with 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 the Shatner and Doing. And mm. that, and the emotion that's coming off of doing in that, in that scene mm. where he's just like, he's of course, I mean, he's just lost his nephew and he had yeah. now in the novelization of the, uh, of Star Trek three, if I recall correctly, he actually, um, they actually, they actually deal with that where, uh, Scotty goes to his sister and says, this is what happened and and he has to he has to kind of explain that mm. um there's a there's a, a a bit of of a scene in that something else that is not generally known in in the uh in kind of the canon and this shows just how big of a star trek geek i am <laughs> and and one of the things we haven't actually talked about is savic in all of this yes yes and Christiali's uh, uh introduction uh, as as Savic, but the thing about that is, uh, where was I going with that? Um, the character is supposed to be half woman and half Vulcan. That was it. Yes, the ca- the character. You see, you see that particularly the then sick. We see her with tears running down her face on when Spock's funeral. Exactly. Now that uh, was Spock dies. Remember Spock's plot spoilers. Plot spoilers. Oh yes, plot spoilers. <laughs> Spock dies in this. Yes. Yeah, yeah, but then. In this third film, when Robin Curtis plays Savek, she becomes full Vulcan. Yeah. More or less. Is it, is it two, uh, is it, is it, is it two different people? I'll go two back. Two, 
I'll go back to yeah. I'll go back to the novelization on that as well. Is that in in Star Trek three? Um, she's she's still half half Romulan, half Vulcan, in that. But I mean, that's the novelization. As 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 a friend of mine once said, if it's not on, if it's not on screen, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. So. But that's not mentioned at all in the actual film. She's half. You 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 see the film first. You think she's a full Vulcan, but if you if you look at her and put in novelizations, I've not just for these these films, but in other 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 books, she's definitely clearly half Romulan, half Vulcan. That's why she's more emotional than a proper for normal Vulcan. Right. That's now, where you see this her crying and you know she's, she's and and saying even in the first scene when she says, "Damn." Yeah. Exactly. Now, uh. I'd like I, I'd like to put our discussion on hold because this next section has one of my favorite cues of the entire film in it, and this is the battle in the Mutara Nebula. And the reason why uh, it is one of my favorite cues is, or at least one of the re- reasons why, is it is I was lying on the couch in the basement when I was living at home, and I'm lying there and I'm listening to Star Trek two and this cue comes on and I go, I, all of a sudden I had kind of a Eureka moment and it was like, okay, while this, this was sort of, oh, sorry, while this was prevalent in Star Wars, hearing it in this context really struck me. And it's an eight and a half or eight, eight and a bit minute cue. And I just, I, I absolutely love it. So what I'm going to say is, uh, is this, is that, um, let's just get right to it because we don't have a lot of time left. I, again, I always say we're never going to have enough music. We're never going to have enough music. We always end up having enough music in any case. So what I'm going to do is continue on with, uh, some more, with some more music from Star Trek two as we di- we're going to be discussing off air which i think our discussions off air are much more are much much more cooler than the uh, the on air discussions but not that our on air discussions aren't equally as cool in any case i'm going to continue on with some more music from star trek 2 the wrath of khan and we're going to get right uh, you'll you'll know battle in the mutara nebula when you hear it trust me cuz i use it i use it all the time to demonstrate to people just how good film music can be we'll be back in just a bit
You know, Jason, I can't remember before or since <laughs> where Amazing Grace yeah. has has been so well done. Mm-hmm. I mean, going from that uh, from the bagpipes to that full orchestra, and and, and Horner was reluctant to do it. He had to be persuaded to do this as well. He really, was very, very reluctant. I'm surprised because it is such an integral mm. part of yeah. the. And I mean, it's, it's, I've, I, you know what? It's, I don't think I've ever heard Amazing Grace performed with a full orchestra before. No, it's wonderful. And it's really just, wonderful. it's absolutely gorgeous. An absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous uh, not, cue. Not a, not a dry eye in the house. After oh, geez. Okay. Happening. Yes. With the time that we have left, we've got a couple of things that we discussed one of the things that I want to I want to talk about just very very briefly, but we will discuss it, is the notion that h- how different films were mixed in the eighties. Yes, and the mu- how how prevalent the score is. Um, that, 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 it's, it's a, I think Eric said I think I've said a number of times without that score, with the music front and center, it's just a couple of shoots going around doing funny doing funny circles around each other. Right. The music, the the excitement, the drama comes from Horner's music, and is it the producers or the director knew how important the music is for the action, and it's a, you know it's a shame that a lot of these days directors and producers are very worried about the to have the music of the film front and center, mm-hmm. and this. You cannot say more about this score, about that music, that that sequence. I've listened to that sequence for a long, long time now, of eight, loads and loads of times. And right. every time I listen to it, it still packs the punch because I can see the the scene running through my head. As you probably we, we were talk, as we off air, we were we were just, we were even saying all, all, all the dialogue, what was going on. Exactly, we were we were. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it shows. I've always said. The great film scores, you don't need the visuals to know what's happening. Exactly. And in this case, it is one of those cases. It is, you definitely don't need the visuals. You can, if you've seen the film, you'll know exactly what's going on in every sequence. And exactly. This is show, this is, this is, you know, James Horner's new composer, and no wonder. This is, this is, I think I said earlier, James Horner, the initial fee for this film was $10,000. After that piece of music and after this entire score, his fee was a lot more than 10000 probably yeah. the number zero. Yeah, for he was, sure. Because for this sure. score made James Horner the composer and one of the, turned him, one of the greatest composers of, 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 his, of the age of, yeah. of, of film music. All starting mainly from this score. And you can, you can you listen to the music, you can see why. Yeah. And hear why. Exactly. Well, you know what? I'm just going to say this. The, uh, there was a section of music that I hadn't played yet, but I'm not going to get a chance to get to it. So I'm just only going to say this. The legacy of Star Trek II is, or as, as the best of Star Trek films, I think, stands to this day. Uh, the film stands the test of time, and despite attempts, Ricardo Montalban's Khan is one of Star Trek's greatest villains. Spock's death at the end of the film, spoilers, as we mentioned before, to this day still causes a lump in my throat. It is an iconic scene that has not been forgotten by this Star Trek fan. Spock represented hope. And when he died, 
that hope was lost. As Spock said, there are always possibilities. Possibilities that were realized in the succeeding films that we actually didn't know were coming oh. at that time. So that's all for, for us this week. Uh, thanks for hanging in, those that did. As we continue into 2022, I hope as you're getting on with your day that you realize just how awesome you are. Never let anyone tell you any different. If you're ever not feeling right, there are people out there who care about you and are willing to chat. If not family, then some professional who can help. As Rocky said, nobody hits harder than life. I know from personal experience how hard it is for me to sit behind this mic week after week when I feel like no one's listening. I would never have made it this far without the support of a huge team of people behind me. If you or someone you know is in crisis and needs help, resources are available. In case of an emergency, please call 911 for immediate help. The Canadian Association for Suicide Prevention, Depression Hurts, Kids Help Phone at 1-800-668-6868. Also, 1-844-HERE-247. That's 1-844-HERE-247. Uh, we'll also help you out. You can also go on onto their website, here247.ca. <sighs> well, join uh, me next week as 80s Month continues for a tribute to filmmaker Ivan Reitman. Now, uh, Jason, just before we, we end off, what have you got coming up? Well, I've got a lot of interviews coming up. It's sort of finished recently with some very interesting people, which Eric Woods will be probably putting on soon on Simonic Sound. I have some more interviews starting. I'm going to be doing in the next couple of weeks. I'm looking forward to do with some very interesting people, interesting people, including a, a composer who came to me this week. Uh, with people came to me this week for an interview, so I'm really looking forward to this. I'll, I'll, right. I'll say who it is, but it's a really exciting interview. Cool. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Also, I'm working on a couple of archive shows. Well, two-part archive shows always to try and catch up. I haven't done one for one of them phases. I'm looking forward to do that. Cool. And uh, I'm doing something for FSM as well. So I've got plenty to do, and I'm hoping very soon you'll be listening to some good interviews from me very soon on the Cinematic Sound Podcast Network, which I've finished. And uh, I think they're good ones. I think you'll enjoy them when they come out. All right. That sounds great. So, like I said, join me next week as we're, we're doing a tribute to the late Ivan Reitman and have some, some of his films. So I'll end off this week's show with some more music from Star Trek II. Now, on the original, and I'll just make this very, very brief, on the original release of uh, the GNP Crescendo release that I have as well, um, you have the ending where you have Spock talking over the, over the ending. That, that's on disc two. Exactly. Yeah. It does not show up on the La La Land, the, um, the remastered one. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play the ending cue off of the GNP Crescendo album, which has, I think, when um, there are varying stories that I hear from people about, about what happened when uh, Leonard Nimoy's voice came in. Some say cheered. I remember just being an absolute mess i was in tears as 12 years old you know i was i just lost a huge hero in any case so we will be back next week or i'll be back next week with more visions in sound live long and prosper <laughs>
final frontier. These are the continuing voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Her ongoing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life forms and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before.